This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome to Rand. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, Vice President for External Affairs at the Rand Corporation. I will be the moderator for tonight's discussion. It's my pleasure to introduce you to tonight's distinguished guest. Chief Justice Tawny Cantil Sakauye is the 28th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California. Sworn in on January 3, 2011, she chairs the Judicial Council of California, the administrative policy body of our state courts, and the Commission on Judicial Appointments. Chief Justice Cantil Sakauye has served for more than 20 years on California's appellate and trial courts. Most recently, she served as a member of the Court of Appeal, 3rd Appellate District in Sacramento, California. Please join me in welcoming Chief Justice Cantil Sakauye. Thank you, Lindsay. Our first question um, uh, is really stems from my exploration um, of what is today a very sophisticated website for the state and for the Supreme Court, um, where summaries of pending cases are published. And I counted roughly, um, this is not exact, 68 criminal cases and 58 civil cases that were pending on topics ranging from mobile home conversions uh, to how you grant or revoke a charter for a charter school um, to the extent of attorney work product protection um, to the case decided just last week on uh, wage and hour requirements for employers. And I was hoping that you could give us a sense of how it is that the court goes about deciding what what ultimately does it hear? How does it choose its cases? Thank you. That's a very good question and probably one that isn't always uh, comes to mind when you think about the California Supreme Court. But it probably first starts with an overview, as you know. The trial courts have, uh, actually hear the lion's share of cases. And the trial courts are where we have a broad range of jurisdictions and about 17 di- different kinds of case discipline types. But if you were to lose at the trial court, of course, if it was a criminal case, you would have a right to automatically appeal to the Court of Appeal. If it was a civil case, if you could afford it, you could then appeal to the Court of Appeal. Most case law in California is made in the Court of Appeal because that is a case of last resort for most cases in that when you go to the Supreme Court, the only way you have your matter heard in the California Supreme Court is not by right, unless, of course, it's a death penalty case, but if, in fact, the Supreme Court grants review. So the Supreme Court looks at what uh, a petition for review. So if you lost in the Court of Appeal, then you would petition the Supreme Court to review your case. And so the Supreme Court would receive petitions for review, and we look at the issue and the procedural posture of the case. And if we determine that the issue raised in the petition for review is either one of statewide importance or two as a matter of conflict among the six courts of appeal, we will then grant review. If it's not one of those categories, uh, we would not normally grant review. And when you think about that, it's because of resources. You look at the um, trial court. The trial court has approximately 1,500 jurists. The Court of Appeal has approximately 100 jurists. The Supreme Court has seven jurists. So when you think of how a case travels through the process of review, you have one judge and maybe a jury who decides the case at the trial court level. At the court of appeal level, you have at least three jurists who decide the matter at the court of appeal. And then when you go to the Supreme Court, we sit as seven or en banc, as they say. 
So what we do is we all read the petitions for review, all seven justices, and every Wednesday tomorrow we meet in my chamber and we sit around a table and we talk about each and every case that's been uh, on for review and whether or not we should grant review. Four votes to grant means that we will grant review of that case. So I, I wanted to follow up a little bit. You had mentioned that death penalty cases are automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court. I'm just curious, in terms of the sort of percentage of time and resources that they take, um, do you have an estimate of, of what it is that death penalty cases consume as part of the court's docket? Yes, the uh, death penalty cases, automatic appeals, take up approximately 25% of the court's focus. Uh, mind you that um, these cases come often with anywhere from 18 to 32 claims. And each and every claim is reviewed uh, and decided and acted upon. Further, there are habeas corpus petitions that accompany uh, automatic appeals after the automatic appeal is affirmed. And those also have numerous, numerous claims, and every claim is worked up in every habeas corpus petition involving death. I wanted to ask you, as, as Chief Justice, I think you assign the authors of the various opinions. Um, and I was curious, I had uh, looked to take a peek at what was your first opinion, um, and it was a, a fascinating fact pattern involving um, a fisherman who had caught a spiny lobster out of season. Um, he, um, he was observed by a game warden who saw him take something out of the water um, and later pulled him over and, uh, and decided to examine uh, and, and inspect the car and found the spiny lobster. I was just curious um, what, what it was that, uh, that, that made you decide that this, this would be your first opinion on behalf of the court. <laughs> well, I am called the savior of the spiny lobster. <laughs> Someone said it is because once you become chief, you live in a fishbowl, and a lobster is close enough. No, but the truth is, is that case had been granted review prior to uh, my being uh, coming chief justice. So somewhere a year or two prior, uh, people, uh, the, the Macchio case was granted review. But the question on review in that case was the authority of a game warden to pull over a driver in a car and whether or not a game warden needed reasonable suspicion or probable cause to stop the car and make a demand to see the catch. And so really it was a constitution, it was an authority question about the uh, ability for a game warden to conduct that kind of stop. And so it was a part constitutional question and part statutory question. And um, it recently went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court denied cert. So I, I feel better about the spiny lobster. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't come as a huge shock at this point that I might ask about your first dissent. Um, and uh, that was in the case decided fairly recently um, uh, that... Um, regarding the, I think it was two state laws um, that uh, related to redevelopment agencies, local redevelopment agencies, and ultimately, um, as I think most people are aware, um, uh, the the decision was made following um, through the legislature and following the court's opinion um, that those redevelopment agencies are now being closed up. And I was curious what it was that helped you to decide that this was the time to to write your first dissenting opinion. Well, first, let me preface this by saying I'll have to be very general because I don't can't uh, really talk too in-depth, I've come to learn that subject matter often makes a repeat performance at the Supreme Court. 
But I will say that it was my first dissent on the redevelopment case, and it involved uh, two statutes that the legislature passed affecting the uh, the continued existence of redevelopment agencies, and then the ability for redevelopment agencies to sort of recreate themselves under the new requirements of the new law. And so my dissent had to do with uh, the majority held on the second law that that was also unconstitutional, that uh, the the legislature could not uh, create by statute this second um, redevelopment, a new project. And I dissented on that, and I dissented primarily... uh, on, I think, doctrinal grounds, on the presumption of the constitutionality of a statute unless absolutely proven to be unconstitutional. I also dissented clearly, as you can read, that I felt that the uh, case had not been made for making, finding it con- unconstitutional, and that was the burden of the petitioner. Failure to do so meant that the presumption stood. Well, I wanted to turn from, uh, from those opinions to an, another major focus for you um, as the chief uh, justice and chief administrator of the courts. Um, and uh, my understanding from the good people at the Legislative Analyst's Office is that at its highest, the budget for the state courts was $4 billion. Um, since then, court security costs have been, I gather, shifted to the counties, and, and the budget for next year is projected or proposed to be about $3.3 billion. Um, in your first address to the legislature, you talked about $653 million in cuts since 2008. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your strategy uh, for securing funding and resources for the judicial branch when you're up against really worthy and important causes like schools um, uh, and uh, health care, et cetera. How, how do you go about securing the funding, and, and are there champions who help you out in, in that? Thank you. That's a that's a multifaceted question, and I would first start by giving you a little information, and that is that of 38 million Californians in California who who uh, who live here, the general fund, the state general fund, allocates 2.4 percent of the entire general fund to the judicial branch to protect constitutional freedoms and the statutes. 2.4 percent. And the judicial branch consists of 1,700 jurists, 21,000 court employees, um, 19 million square feet of 451 facilities. And we handle cases from the most complex civil litigation to people who are trying to stay in their apartment who are facing unlawful eviction. So I also want to point out that in this budget, courts have no control over the types of cases or number of cases that we handle. Whatever's filed, we hear. And we hear in the most uh, expedited fashion that we can issue a balanced uh, ruling. Now, against that backdrop, since 2008, we are in our fourth year of a consecutive cut to the budget. So the first year, we could rally our resources, and we could try to fend off the cut. The second year, the same thing. We had resources. We, we weren't a fat budget, but we were certainly had saved money. We had looked for rainy days. We had initiatives in the future that we wanted to pursue. So we had pots of reserves we were going to use for our future plans, but we redirected those funds in order to cut off cut after cut. But we're now in our fourth year of a cut. Our resources are very limited because we've used them in the last three years. Uh, We've really truncated our projects. We've just tried to keep the courts open. 
So um, in the last year, we received a $350 million cut. That brings the judicial branch reduction since 2008 to $653 million, which is approximately 24% of our budget that's been reduced. Mind you, our case law, our cases and the law hasn't been reduced. And mind you, we haven't been funded for growth. So we are really under siege in terms of our cases. So what we did is we went to the legislature, we went to the Department of Finance over the summer. We met with them. I sat down with them, and I said, we have a plan for going forward in fiscal year 12-13, and here's what it is. We know that as a co-equal branch of government, we have to share the pain. We're not asking to be exempt. We know we have a responsibility to also step up to the plate and operationalize our cuts, become more efficient, and become more productive. But you've cut us to the bone. We cannot go forward in this and continue to hear cases, civil cases. So here's our plan. We've contacted the attorneys who have supported us in a fully funded judiciary, and we've asked them if they could consider doing their part in some kind of increase in fees or fines in some way, some portion. Then we went to the trial courts, and we said, trial courts, we need you to somehow operationalize an additional $100 million of cut. We will also look in our dwindling little pockets of reserves for another $50 million. And then we went to the governor's office and we said, we need a $100 million restoration. Together with the attorney's help in, in fees and fines, with the courts operationalizing $100 million, with us finding another $50 million in the process of using and scraping our, whatever's left of our funds, and a $100 million restoration, Governor, we have a $300 million restoration plan. We think we can survive on $300 million more to our branch. Even if you cut us $653 million, we're prepared to operationalize $350 million. We will use fiscal year 11-12 as our base budget. We will start from there. I'm not even going to complain about 08, 09, or 10. I'm going to start, Governor, with 11-12. And I will look at that and say, $350 million taken from us is fair. But we need $300 million. And this is our plan. And our plan means everyone holds hands. The attorneys are holding hands with the branch. The branch is holding hands with the governor. Everyone jumps in and everyone gives something because no one entity feels that it is responsible for funding a judicial branch or, the, or a co-equal branch of government. I certainly understand the attorney's concerns that if the attorneys step up, they will find out that this is a play-to-pay system. And no one wants a play-to-pay system. But if everyone can do their part and we can all hold hands and take the pain equally, then we might be able to restore uh, the judicial branch budget to at least keep it what's functioning in in 11-12. And so we are actively working to seek restoration from the general fund of $100 million. $100 million that we think will help us function in 12-13. The attorney groups have been, and the bar groups, the bar associations, and even business groups have been our great supporters. Um, the Open Courts Coalition is a group of attorneys from all disciplines, from plaintiff's bar, defense bar, the uh, criminal prosecution bar, criminal defense bar, the business bar, uh, the public aid, legal aid bar. They've all come together. They endorse this plan. We've talked it up and down the legislature. In Los Angeles, there was a rally for this plan. And in tomorrow, April 18, in, La in San Francisco, there will be a rally on the steps of the Supreme Court to call attention to the funding mechanism problem. And uh, the attorneys know best that they are unable to represent their clients if 
judicial branch is not fully functioning. I want to ask about a painful decision that you had to make earlier this year um, uh, about the knowledge management system um, that had been in the works for several years and that was intended to bring um, a truly electronic system to all 58 counties in the state of California. Um, and ultimately, um, the decision was made um, by the administrative body that, that oversees the courts uh, to walk away from what's a more than $500 million investment by some, by some estimates after the knowledge management system was rolled out in some of the largest counties in the state, um, but I think only a, a handful ultimately. Um, can you sort of tell us a little bit about, um, about the decision to, uh, to, to terminate, well, essentially to... to uh, not complete the knowledge management system? Thank you. Yes, it was an incredibly difficult choice. But first, let me give you some background about the CCMS, or the California Court Case Management System. And what it was is, was, was a, pro a technology project that is fully developed. It's done. It's finished. It finished development in November of 2011. And we had two independent studies that told us it works. It works. The attorneys had seen the product. Um, the state bar had seen it. Consumer Attorneys of California had seen it. The uh, Defense Council had seen it. And they all said, this is a wonderful product. They wrote stories about how great this product was. The, in, the, in the short end of it, however, when it came time to deploy it, we knew it would cost several million dollars. And anyone who does IT knows that the initial deployment is the most expensive because you have to build a foundation. You have to do certain things if you're going to implement it in one court or you're going to implement it in 58. And we knew that we didn't have the money in fiscal year 11-12 or what looked like fiscal year 12-13 with only $100 million of restoration from the general fund to the judicial branch that we couldn't feasibly deploy it. We didn't have the money to deploy it. We certainly have the need. We definitely have the product. But we faced the hard decision of what we could do with it now, and we knew we couldn't invest today's dollars into deploying it for tomorrow. But let me also say this. It was an iterative project, so there was a version 2, 3, and 4. Version 2 and 3 are up and running in at least seven courts. Orange County has the system, and it's gone completely paperless in its civil uh, division. It is a product that people know brings efficiencies. But the saddest part of CCMS is we couldn't spend the dollar today to save $10 in the future. We just couldn't do it with closing courtrooms and laying people off and not having access. Judicial Council, who fully supports the CCMS system, who's seen it work, know, knew that we could not. And let me tell you a little bit about the product. It was a product that would work in this way. It's a computer, it's computer software, and it would mean that it connected all 58 courts so that a, a practitioner in Imperial County didn't have to drive to Siskiyou County to find out what was going on with a similarly filed case or to file a case in Siskiyou. That means an, an attorney in Imperial County could go on vacation to Rio de Janeiro, stop into an internet cafe, get into the CCMS portal, check his or her class action lawsuit, and determine that what's been filed, what's happening when the next hearing is, and where there might be other lawsuits similar to that in California that could be pulled up on CCMS. Also, CCMS on the criminal side would have permitted CHP, uh, law enforcement, 
to hook into portals into the CCMS system. So when they stopped a person on the street, they would know whether that person had a record, whether they had a, a, a penchant for weapons, whether they had an arrest warrant, they'd have a picture of them. It was a safety process for law enforcement. It also allowed foster care and um, children's services, child protective services, to have information on children in the system. If a child was in the dependency system and moved somehow from Yuba County to Los Angeles County, instead of waiting months, if ever, if that record would follow, it would mean that the judge in L.A. County could certainly access the Yuba County records and we would be able to have and be able to bring services to this child sooner and faster, especially in foster care where children move from placement to placement to placement over a year, we would be able to have that information accessible so the child wouldn't miss school, so the child would be safe, so we knew whose home that child was going to, so we knew that there wasn't a convicted child molester in the home that the child was going to. I mean, CCMS was, is still a fantastic product. What we're trying to do now is leverage it in another way. We're still committed to technology. We're just trying to find a way we can use parts of CCMS in the courts that we can move on to electronic filing, e-discovery, and other matters of document management that we can use with technology in California. Now, you've mentioned the foster care system and some of the aspects of the, the broader judicial system. I wanted to ask you, because you spent some time actually in something of a specialty court focused on domestic violence, um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about your experience in that context and some of, the, uh, some of the special courts that have been developed over the years in California. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what makes domestic violence um, and some of these other topics so consequential that they need to have their own special courts. Thank you. In 1997, when I was a Sacramento trial court judge, I did a collaborative project with the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, and Sacramento County Probation to start the first ever domestic violence court in Sacramento. The district attorney's office had done a, a study of sorts, and they knew that domestic violence was going under radar, huge problem in the community. And so we pooled resources, and I agreed to be the judge for that court. What was interesting in 1997, anecdotally, is um, I received a lot of pushback for starting a court dedicated to domestic violence. I was asked by certain people in the community, is that really a crime? I was asked... Um, do you think you can? Do you think you will have enough cases to use one court? Do you think it's worth dedicating one court to this problem? I was told that you're not going to have enough cases, so you're going to have to find an. You're going to have to do prelims in the afternoon, because you're just not going to have enough cases. Well, we opened up and we ran a jammed court for. 200 cases a day from 8 till 6. People volunteered. Uh, social workers came in. Witness protection folks came in. Law enforcement came in. And we ran a court for, well, I, was, I was presided for maybe two and a half years. It got to the point where I knew families. I knew people. I knew what the situation was in the family. I knew of the children. And it was an incredible situation. I think I felt for the first time as a judge really tied into the community and being able to do good. I would be standing in line at a grocery store, and a woman would tug in my sleeve, and she'd say, he doesn't hit me anymore. You know, there was a certain amount of, if you hit her, you're going to go to court, and you're going to see the same judge who remembers you. And there was a certain amount of that in a community as small as Sacramento, you could accomplish that. And what we found is if the core family was being tended to, the collateral problems, child uh, juvenile delinquency and 
minor crime also dissipated in that family. Uh, we learn now and we know now more than ever about domestic violence, that it has an injurious effect on children growing up, that it has a, it's a huge factor in juvenile delinquency and juvenile dependency and future violence. And so that court was important to Sacramento County. It started in Sacramento County. That's how collaborative courts start. The community says, this is important to us. Mental health in our community is important. We're going to start a court with the help of the Bar Association and the buy-in of the prosecutor and the defense attorneys. They create that court. Our, we have a sector. California is the leader in collaborative courts. We have mental health courts, uh, military veteran combat courts, a mortgage fraud court, drug courts. We have courts that speak to different uh, issues uh, to different populations in the communities. But all of these courts are grassroots driven. They're, this comes from what the people tell the Bar Association. The Bar Association tells the bench and the bar, this is what we need. It's a pilot. We start it. And if it works, then at Judicial Council, we extrapolate it. Now, in your, um, in your remarks to the legislature, you also... Uh, raised the issue of juvenile delinquency, um, and you um, you made them something of a promise uh, that you would be back uh, in a year or so with some ideas about how the court could engage um, in what seems to be a connection between truancy um, and uh, and school discipline and ultimately involvement in the juvenile justice system and perhaps in the adult justice system. Um, you also talked about uh, some research that's been done about the um, the disparate uh, distribution of, of school discipline between minority and non-minority youth. And I was curious if you could give us a little bit of a preview ahead of the legislature on what it is that you might uh, what it is that you might be thinking about. Well, I'm thinking of uh, two general areas having to do with uh, st students. And, and one, of course, is, as you mentioned, um, suspensions and expulsions, because as the studies seem have shown that one suspension uh, triples the chance of that child's introduction into the juvenile justice system that year. Uh, one suspension also doubles the chance for that child to repeat that grade. And we know as children fall behind, they don't finish school, and they drop out, and we don't give them the means to uh, actually become contributing members of society if we, if we let them slip through our fingers in middle school and high school. So uh, my first uh, direction to uh, people on uh, the Judicial Council and the committees that serve Judicial Council is to establish a partnership with the schools to provide a restorative justice bridge so that we can take children who are suspended or ex ex expelled, and we can work with the school to get them back into school, that we don't take time out of their lives at juvenile hall if we don't have to. If these are our, our truancy um, violations or are, are not uh, criminal violations, then we should find a way to work with them. We need a way to get them back into school and engage them because we don't do them a great deal of of service by putting them in juvenile justice and putting them in a juvenile hall. And we look at the development of the child's brain and the shame that comes with that and the feeling of, of, of not being sufficient. And there's just so much of a psychological response to that that we, I think, can be a partner in preventing that from happening. So I have some very good people working on a restorative justice partnership with the schools to prevent that. Um, the other aspect has to do with civics education. Uh, Justice Sandra O'Connor, and I see MC out there, 
is uh, very instrumental, I think, in establishing that middle schools and high schools have students who don't understand government, the separation of powers, the executive branch, the legislative branch, or the judicial branch. And there are studies abound that say more people can name the three stooges than they can name the three branches of government, right? <laughs> there are more people out there who can name all of the judges on American Idol but can't name any one of them on the United States Supreme Court. So, of course, that's symptomatic of what's happening out there in terms of knowledge of the civics education. But we, we depend so much on our on our, on our our constituents, our population, our, our children, to be the next group of leaders. And we at the judicial branch feel that the root of some of the concerns and some of the uh, reasons the judicial branch is not seen as an equal third branch or is not seen as needing the kind of funds it does to protect constitutional rights is because people don't understand that um, the judicial branch protects and is the foundation of all of your rights, whether you're getting greater education or whether it has to do with housing. If you don't have a fully functioning judicial branch, those promises of a better education and better business are illusory if there is no way to enforce the law. So in 2013, we hope to roll out an education's initiative legislation and a summit that finds a way to get civics education back into middle schools and high schools. Maybe not necessarily as a core class along with science and English, but maybe finding a way to integrate uh, government civics into social studies, into English, um, into math, into something. You know, you could see a word problem. There are 1,700 jurists and 21,000 court employees. <laughs> they get on a bus. The bus travels. I mean, we can make this work in some way that we can integrate and start talking about the judicial branch in the process of children understanding the world around them. So I'm going to ask one more question before we turn to the audience. Um, and you have mentioned uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who for many um, lawyers, men and women, um, was a pretty remarkable role model. Um, and in looking at the California Supreme Court today, it's pretty impressive. Uh, more than half of the chief justices are female, and more than half of the chief excuse me, less than half of the justices are white. Um, that's a pretty terrific diversity within the Supreme Court. But overall, when you look at the composite of the state courts, it's not such a terrific picture. I think 72% of judges uh, across the system self-identified as white, and 69% as male. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why diversity matters um, among uh, members of the judiciary, and, and if it is so important, um, how do we change the picture? How do we change the composite? Thank you. Let me add to your numbers and tell you that um, since 2006 up to now, so the five-year period that we've actually done the survey, uh, women now on the bench are 31%. So we're up 4%. In 2006, we were 27%. And in 2011, we are now 31%. Uh, when we look at um, Asians, we used to be 4.4% on the bench, and now we're something like 5.2%. We mirror, actually, African Americans, also 4.4% on the bench in 2006, maybe 5.2% or 5.4% now in 2011. Uh, the greatest uh, growth we've seen has been in Hispanics, 6.2% in 2006, 8.2% or so now in 2011. And you're right, um, dis uh, diversity to the bench is slow in coming. And I think in some respects it has to do with the fact that 
Um, we are and have been a predominantly uh, male um, profession, and you need a minimum of 10 years to become a judge or to even apply to be a judge. That's the qual a minimum qualification. Now, we are finding more and more people are seeing themselves in the role as a judge, and Governor Brown has certainly made great strides with diversifying the bench by his appointments. I know that diversity is important. It's critical to California's uh, faith and confidence in the bench. When you think of California, what they call us, we are a famously uh, majority-minority state. The last census indicated that there is no one ethnic group that holds a majority in California. We also know that California is almost, if not already, uh, majority, uh, slightly over majority women. So we know that California is a diverse population. I would venture to say the most diverse on the planet. And the judicial branch, the rule of law flourishes because people trust that it is made objectively and faithfully with adherence to the Constitution and the statutes of our state. Um, in my view, that is why when unpopular legal decisions are handed out either by the U.S. Supreme Court or the California Supreme Court, people don't riot. We have disagreement, we, but we lay out our opinion with our reasoning, our reference to past cases, our reference to history, our, our reference to respecting certain presumptions. So we explain our opinion, in that's how we make the rule of law. But nevertheless, when decisions are made, people righteously look to who and what the decision maker looks like. And it's when the population of California, 38 million Californians, see that those who are making these decisions that are so important to their everyday lives are people who reflect them and reflect our ethnicity and reflect our culture. And by diversity, I don't just mean race or gender. I mean experience. I mean a discipline. I, I mean your I mean your population, whether you come from a place like Trinity County versus a place like San Diego County. We need diversity of experience and diversity of, of, of culture and gender and race. And then I believe we will continue to have the public faith and confidence that is so critical to how the judicial branch, um, I think, develops the rule of law and how the rule of law maintains itself. So I hope that folks have warmed themselves up to ask some questions. We do have microphones for you. We ask you to use those so your question can be heard by one and all. A hardball question. Okay, let me set it up, and then I'll, uh, I'll launch the hardball question. There are three levels of, of court in the judicial branch, trial court, court of appeal, and the Supreme Court. And we are all individually elected judicial officers. The only people who run statewide are the seven justices on the Supreme Court. Everyone else runs in their jurisdiction. Nevertheless, we're, we're more than a confederation of courts gathered together that happen to be judges. As a judicial branch, we have a statewide uh, re uh, responsibility. And so we have a statewide entity. And that statewide entity is called the Judicial Council. The Judicial Council is the statewide policymaking body of the judicial branch. It has its origins in the Constitution. It was created in 1926. It was created by two senators who basically said, when things go wrong in the courts, it's no one's responsibility, it's no one's problem. We need to create a council 
that actually deals with the problems of the litigants. So the council was created. The council permits the chief, whoever the chief might be, which happens to be me at the moment, to actually pick the members of this council. I pick the members of this council. There are uh, 21 official members, and 11 of them are voting. So the hardball question is this. You know, Chief, the Judicial Council makes important decisions. I mean, we author the California Rules of Court. That's what the attorneys follow when they practice in any jurisdiction. You know, Chief, I don't know. You get to pick 21 people. Why do you get to pick 21 people, Chief? Why do you get to pick the people who serve on that board? Uh, shouldn't that board be democratically elected, Chief? That's a hardball question. And here's my answer. I heard you say go for it. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. The seven justices of the Supreme Court are the only people who are elected statewide. Um, the, the, the ten people that I appoint onto the Judicial Council, the Constitution gives me the authority to appoint those, uh, well, all 21 people on the Judicial Council. My power emanates solely from the Constitution and nothing else. And the Constitution was voted on by people in 1926 because they realized there was a problem with judicial branch administration. So my first response would be, if you don't like that, the Constitution needs to be changed because I am a mere steward of the position of Chief Justice. I will hold this position, respect it, and treat it with all the dignity that the third branch of government leader has. And I will not squander or misuse that authority, and I will also not volunteer it, because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the position of the Chief Justice, which I will happen to, in, to uh, inhabit for maybe the next 10 years. So first of all, it's constitutional authority. But the policy reason that I see for why the Judicial Council is appointed by the Chief is this. On the Judicial Council, only the Chief and the Vice Chair, Justice Marvin Baxter, only the two of us stand statewide election. Only the two of us are accountable to every single voter in this state. And so we bear a heavy mantle of state administration responsibilities. So when I name people to the council, what I ask of them are three things. I ask that they have a statewide perspective. I ask that they shed the city and county they came from and come to council thinking like a jurist statesperson because they're there to think for everyone so that the, the public in um, Reading get the same kind of public treatment that the person in San Diego gets. The second thing I ask is that you be collegial because we fight a lot on judicial council. We debate things, but we have to be able to disagree amicably because if not, we won't be able to talk to each other the next day. The, th the third thing I ask for in this process is that you have a 30,000-foot view. I'm asking you to make policy decisions, not come and tell me what the problem is with your particular court, because your particular court already has a presiding judge. Your particular court already has an executive team that serves your presiding judge. If you have problems in your court, you need to go to your presiding judge not to the Chief Justice and the Chair of the Judicial Council, because we are here to serve the public. It was a body created for the public. The other thing I would say about that hard question is that uh, when things go haywire, when things go wrong in the judicial branch, it is the Chief Justice's name who's on the line. And so the Chief Justice has every incentive to make sure 
that statewide policy is fair and equitable and diversely represented by appointment to the Judicial Council. Now, did you served on the Judicial Council as, a, as an appointee of Chief Justice George, your predecessor, is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. it was, uh, I can only imagine that that was a pretty terrific warm-up to, uh, to the role that you're in today. It was certainly educational. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question in the front. Uh, Madam Chief Justice, uh, your presentation this evening has been fabulous, and uh, we're so proud to have you as our Chief Justice. Uh, my question has to do with prison overcrowding. Uh, the causes of it are many and diverse, I'm sure, but I'm wondering if you could speculate for a moment on one of the, or perhaps two of the reasons for it, the three strikes law and uh, the uh, issue of, um, yeah, let's just stay with the three, three strikes law. <laughs> okay. I, rem I know the three strikes law well because I was a, 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 a settlement judge in criminal law when the three strikes law passed. I think that was 1993. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I am going to be underwater with this new law because no one knew how it would work. Um, but as you know now, uh, there is discretion in, uh, with judges guided by the law as to how and whether to strike a prior under the three strikes law. But the three strikes law is really a, an animal that I think belongs in large part to the executive branch because it is the prosecutor, the district attorney in your county who files charges. Uh, the, the responsibility and the authority and the discretion to file charges lies with the district attorney's office in your county. So of course they make, he or she makes the decision whether or not to, to charge the prior robbery, the prior burglary, whatever the prior serious felony conviction is in the charging document that comes to court. And in the separation of powers, case law permits the trial court judge to exercise his or her guided discretion to strike the prior under certain circumstances. Now, also, the three strikes law affected credit calculation. So if you go to prison on a three strike sentence, it means you serve a longer portion of your sentence in prison than if you went without that because it's a different credit calculation. Now, in terms of prison overcrowding, um, whether or not the three strikes law has impacted that, I would speculate that it has. But I would also speculate that it's not the only reason for that. And part of my speculation, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, but when I first started as a prosecutor, there were many county programs available so that a person who was convicted of a crime had many different local programs that they could try before it was exhausted, before they failed all of those and went to prison. For many prisoners, prison is a place of last resort. We've tried you at every other program, and we have nowhere else to put you, so you're going to go to prison on your next violation of probation. There are a fair number of those kinds of prisoners. There are also a fair number of prisoners who have such terrible records that the judge feels, I cannot find any local placement for you. So you, you just came out of prison. It's counterintuitive for me to put you in a local program. You're going to go back. So it is sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. It's a vicious cycle. I mean, we often, DAs, if there are any here, refer to that as warehousing a person. You know, life on the installment plan is what it used to be called when I was a prosecutor because of the nature of the building block process of getting a person to prison and then repeatedly placing them in prison for violations. So 
I happen to be quite inspired by the prospect of criminal alignment, realignment, because I think it gets us back to the days when I was a younger prosecutor, when we had local programs or we were thinking about local programs. We were thinking of ways to rehabilitate and to mainstream someone back into society without sending them to prison. And now we have the governor's direction and some funds, not enough, but some funds that will allow us to get started on this road for a certain population. There will always be that nature of the population that has to go to prison by the nature of the crime. But I think now with criminal realignment, we have an opportunity to rethink this process of, of punishment. I'm also excited by evidence-based sentencing, something that happens in other states, something that is on the forefront. California is experimenting with evidence-based sentencing, and that means when I sentence you to prison or to county jail, rather, or whenever I sentence you, I get to know more about you and what motivates you and what deters you. And if I can fashion a sentence to motivate you and deter you from criminal activity, I will try that first because that's evidence-based sentencing. That's sentencing based on factors that allow me to imagine how I can help you succeed. And so I think we're turning a real corner in California. I am sorry that it took a crisis for us to do that. But um, we have found a new way and a new way to look at it. I have a question in the back. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, is our Constitution here in California too long, too cumbersome? And do we as Californians uh, too often amend the Constitution when another law or uh, some other type of uh, passage might do? See, now that question is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> but I'm only going to say that... We have a very long constitution. <laughs> I think this is not me, but I'm going to paraphrase Chief Justice George. I think he said it's as long as the constitution in India. And I don't know, I've not seen that, but I, I, I just want to say that we, we do amend it. Uh, there has been art scholarly articles written that it's too easy to amend our constitution. Five, you know, it has a, a, the rule about 5% or of, the, of the, those who voted in the last uh, gubernatorial election. But whether it's too long, uh, whether it's uh, too easily amended, is really a matter of, of subjective, a matter of opinion. And I, I can't say uh, with a definitive uh, response, and nor would I. <laughs> Good time to move on to our next question. We have a question in the front. If your court were called upon to decide the constitutionality of a law that the legislature had passed, what's the mental process that you would go through in making that decision? Thank you. So I will speak. That's a very generic question. I appreciate that. And here's the, here's the, the response. Is first, it would come up through the uh, trial court, court of appeal. It's a pure question of law. It's a pure question of statutory interpretation, statutory construction. So what we would first do is look at the statute that the legislature passed. And the next thing we would do is we would sort of parse it out. We would review it. We would analyze it. 
We would read all the amicus briefs. We would read all the arguments that said why it violates the Constitution. We would then pull up the Constitution, and we would scour it because we would scour not only the article and section that is claimed to be violated, but we will also look at any other contextual constitutional provisions because maybe it doesn't violate just one constitutional provision. Maybe it violates another or some part of another. So we will compare the two, and we will research past cases. And we will see, what have we said about this subject matter before? How have we interpreted this constitutional provision before? How have we interpreted similar laws before? What are other states saying? What are other states doing? Do they have this issue? Um, we will look at that. We will spend a lot of time. We will be separate, seven separate law firms pouring over that statute and looking at the Constitution. But we will start with this presumption, as we do in any time we actually interpret uh, statutes of the legislature. We presume it is constitutional. It's a strong presumption of constitutionality. And we will look at it and review it and analyze it. And we, that's a strong presumption, but it has been overcome uh, very recently, in, in fact. And of course, the petitioner who is claiming that the statute is constitutional is unconstitutional, has the burden of proving it to us. Either on its face it's unconstitutional, or by application it turns out to be unconstitutional. I have a question to your right. Justice, uh, what type of uh, technology do you see that you could implement that would make your guys' job easier or smarter? What, what kind of Im improvements out there are there? Well, I think there are many improvements out there. They're not necessarily affordable. Uh, throughout this, the judicial branch. But I think what I would like first to see in the process of technological change is I would like to see e-filing. I would like to see e-filing in all the courts, at all levels of the court. I think that it provides access, not only by the jurists, by the attorneys, but also, dare I say it, eventually by the public. And so if we had e-filing e-service, that would go a long way toward making sure that people are not so much in line as online. We have lines out the door in places, but what we need to do is if we can take any of those people out and put them online, that would be beneficial. Another thing I would like to see, but we really are moving in this way, is we have a lot of access uh, on our website that helps people navigate the judicial branch system. So we have a self-help we have a website, Self-Help. It's translated into um, Spanish. It also helps people navigate. I would like to see more emphasis on our website. I'd like to see it more popular. I'd like to see it in libraries. I'd like to see it in um, law schools, in self-help clinics, in law schools. I'd really like to see the public having more access online as to how they should prepare their paperwork so that then they bring it to court. Maybe they just need a few more tweaks before it's presentable to the judge to make a ruling. We have a question in the back. Uh, uh, Chief Justice, uh, the news that is coming out of the United States Justice Department regarding the withholding of exculpatory evidence from the defense, which has caused innocent people to spend long, long years in prison, has me very frightened and very depressed. Apparently, when this began to be addressed, the Justice Department addressed itself only to individual cases, 
rather than cleaning the whole stable. Uh, I just find this really terrifying. And if I dare ask, what safeguards do we have in California to avoid something like that happening? Thank you. That's a very serious concern. I'm, I'm proud to say that California hasn't been in that stable, but I, I know that California, we have very strict rules of ethics and conduct, not only for lawyers, but also for judges. No, no case and no system is foolproof. And unfortunately, it takes much time to uncover an ethical violation or a Brady violation, as you've said, the withholding of exculpatory uh, material to the defense. Um, and when we find anything, there, those claims are made a lot, not a lot, those, those, those claims are made to the Supreme Court and to the courts of appeal about trials in the trial court level. We take them very seriously. We call up the records, we review them, we cross-check that things were discovered, we open up sealed hearings because we examine whether or not a Brady violation that you described occurred. And we're very careful about that. And if we even think that a Brady violation may have occurred, we send that case back to the trial court, we take care of it, we start over. But there aren't any true safeguards for what I can say is hiding something that no one knows about. But we really depend on the hard work and the professionalism of the attorneys and the ethical, the ethical restraints. And also, I would say that in California, we have a very rigorous system of reciprocal discovery. And so the attorneys should know and do know what the other has and can make requests for it. But again, no situation is foolproof. I'm going to ask one moderator's prerogative. Um, you, uh, you were appointed to the bench in 1990, um, and I imagine that you had a certain set of objectives in mind when you set out on that, uh, on that first important mission, and I'm wondering what advice you give um, to newly appointed judges today as they begin uh, their, their careers as a jurist. Thank you. Well, I tell them that at least in my view, every assignment I've ever had in the judicial branch has been fascinating, and I thought every single one would be my last because I, I would just throw myself into it. And so I tell the same thing to jurists that I tell to attorneys, and that is absolutely apply yourself and do your best at all times and work hard because the result is so rewarding. And also that this is the kind of job, well, particularly for um, public lawyers and judges, that um, you were in this business because of a calling to serve the public. And so that always has to be and always has to drive every single one of your decisions. And if you use that as your compass, then you'll never make the wrong decision. Well, I, please join me in thanking the Chief Justice. Um, thank you. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.